We cannot have pure allies and pure enemies anymore. There are areas where we very much need to view China as a partner. Climate change is one of them. Nuclear proliferation is one of them. We can't just say we're writing off China. And I think the difficulty in Myanmar that we have shows what happens when you don't bring people into trade relationships. Then you don't have many tools at your disposal, right? I think that is why it's been almost impossible to articulate a coherent explanation of U.S. foreign policy for such a long time, because segregating out those buckets where we really need to work with other countries versus the things that are red lines that we cannot allow other countries to cross, it's really difficult and confusing. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are so thrilled to be here with you today as we tackle foreign policy. It feels like we haven't had time to tackle foreign policy in many, many years. (laughs) So we're excited to have the time and space to dive into situations around the world and why we think you should care. Before we get into that, we wanted to share that we send a weekly email on Friday. And we write in it sometimes, and that that's good, and and we're happy to share a little behind-the-scenes scoops into our making a pantsuit politics in our lives. But the real gem in our weekly newsletter are the insights and feedback and just philosophical wonderings of you guys and our amazing community. So if you have not signed up for the email, go to our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, and sign up so you can be a part of this weekly email newsletter. Just to give you a little hint of what the newsletter looks like, this week you'll hear from Hope, who wrote to us about President Biden's call for unity and her reflections on seeing political leaders with greater empathy as part of that. She shared a quote from Father Gregory Boyle that we both loved so much we wrote it down in our Emily P. Freeman journals. The quote is, if we don't welcome our wounds, we will begin to despise the wounded. And Hope said, I genuinely believe that if we had leaders who were more practiced at sitting with and grieving their own pain, we would have a healthier country. I'm not advocating for keeping these people in power. Often self-reflection doesn't happen until we are in a more quiet space. We set boundaries and we stop the harm, just like when my toddler hits his sister. I loved that. More from Hope in this week's newsletter and others. And like Sarah said, you can just go to the homepage of our website, scroll down to the purple box, enter your email address. We will not spam you. We'll just see you once a week with amazing listener insights on Fridays. So as we are recording Thursday, February 4th, President Joe Biden is heading to the State Department to give a speech to the career diplomats there and usher in his foreign policy approach, which I think is easy to say, will be dramatically different from the America First foreign policy approach of the Trump administration. He's expected to address the crisis in Yemen, prioritize the expansion of LGBTQ rights around the world, and just empower diplomats who have felt beat down, who have felt like paying attention to foreign policy and particularly prioritizing diplomacy has not been the preferred route for the past several years. And so, you know, we here at Pantsuit Politics 
are also very excited to welcome in another era of foreign policy and diplomacy and paying attention to not only hotspots around the world, but America's role in those hotspots. And so that's what we thought we'd do here today. We would walk through some of these hotspots. So we're going to talk primarily about Russia and China today, and I think it'll be interesting to test that theory that the Biden approach to foreign policy will be dramatically different than the Trump approach, because in style, 100 percent couldn't be any different right out of the gate. In substance, I think that we're seeing some continuations of what some of the Trump administration did and and some of the better instincts of the Trump administration on foreign policy, particularly as it relates to China and Russia. But There are many, many fine points in all foreign policy discussions that matter dramatically. So kind of pairing the what we do in terms of sanctions and arms sales with an ally-centered America as moral authority in the world could make a huge difference in where we are. Well, I think, you know, both with Russia and China, as we start talking about these in more detail, What's really important to remember as we think about that transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration is that for years, the popular narrative around both countries was either we will open them up to a more democratic system or we will open their economy up to the West in China's case. And that will lead to all kinds of cultural changes and that will lead to the proliferation and flourishing of democratic norms. And what we've seen, and I think to the Trump administration's credit, what they forced everyone to look at is that those narratives were not true and that opening up Russia to a more democratic system with the fall of the Soviet Union and opening up China to the Western economy didn't usher in the changes everyone anticipated they would. And so, you know, I think that the Biden administration sees that and accepts that and has and has articulated as much. And with both Russia and China, We are focusing in on them because those governments are benefited any time liberal democracy is undermined. Mm -hmm. There is a stated specific interest in those countries in proving out that authoritarian models of government are superior to Western democracy. And so even though Russia and China could not be more different in terms of the countries themselves and the people who live there and their cultures, that objective to undermine democracy is aligned. And the case for caring more about foreign policy, if you're a person who usually kind of skips over this stuff, is that I think they provide both a mirror and a window into a lot of what is driving the bus in domestic politics here in the United States right now and help us understand how some of our internal stuff presents a serious national security risk when you look at the goals of these countries. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they made solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. 
You know how you learn to really appreciate how good your products are? Leave town and get stuck with whatever shampoo is in the hotel. I take Pros and their custom hair products for granted, y'all. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do. From their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. From millions of possible formulas, only one is uniquely yours or mine. I never found beauty products that really understood my needs. But ever since I switched to custom hair and skin routine with Pros, I've noticed so many benefits. My thin hair is moisturized but not weighed down, and my waves have never looked better. And Pros isn't just better for you, it's better for the planet. They're a certified B Corps, cruelty-free, and the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash pantsuit. So you get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash pantsuit. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash pantsuit. Traditionally, financial planning advice is either only for those who are already wealthy or salespeople calling themselves financial advisors who say they'll give you free financial advice but really just sell products to earn commissions. Fearless Finance takes a dramatic departure from either of those traditional models. Their entire business is built on making financial advice accessible and affordable because we know that financial literacy, stress reduction, and financial security are critical to overall well-being. I'm a little bit obsessed with Elizabeth, our fearless finance advisor. I've had an array of advisors in the past who answered questions like, should we be spending less on this with evasive answers like, it depends on your priorities. Not Elizabeth. She answers with actually helpful guidelines. You're spending more than the average family of five, or I'd like to see this increase by 6%. Uh, thank you. This is Fearless Finance's mission, to make advice affordable and accessible. You meet with your planner virtually and they charge you by the hour. You only pay for the time you use down to a quarter hour. Their planners meet with you where you are on your financial journey, no judgment. Visit fearlessfinance.com today. You can chat with a planner for free to make sure it's a good fit and you'll get $50 off your first planning meeting when you use the code pantsuit. That's fearlessfinance.com and use code pantsuit for $50 off your first planning meeting. So let's start with Russia. Russia has been in the news recently, particularly surrounding the opposition leader, Alexa Navalny. Just this week, Alexa Navalny was sentenced to prison for more than two and a half years because the court found that he violated the terms of his probation. Well, what was he on probation for? Well, he was on probation for a 2014 embezzlement conviction that the European Court of Human Rights ruled was unlawful and that Russia had paid him compensation in line with that ruling. So the original charge was an intimidation technique, as found by most Western nations and human rights advocates. And so he gets charged, he gets found guilty. You know, the the courts in Russia are largely just seen as an arm of the government. And while he was on probation, if we all remember, he was poisoned. It was very dramatic. So he was in Siberia. He was flying back to Moscow, I believe, and he became violently ill, vomiting, eventually was put into a coma. And so the, the in this sort of dramatic turn of events, the pilot flew him to a hospital in Russia, and then he was taken from the hospital in Russia to Germany for treatment. He is literally in a coma. And the government's accusation at this hearing is that he violated 
his probation by leaving the country and not alerting, I guess, his his government officials, his probation officers. I don't know how one would do that in a coma. But he actually says, I did try to tell them what was going on, or like my people tried to alert them to what was happening. Of course they knew what was happening because just like the original charge, this charge of violating the probation is trumped up. Okay, so now they're saying you were supposed to serve three and a half years on the suspended sentence from a charge from, what, seven years ago. He had served a year under house arrest, so that's counting his time served, and now he's going to serve this two and a half years because they're no longer suspending it because he violated his probation while in a coma. Now, he is very, very good at taking advantage of the Internet and the media and, you know, taking what could be a terrible situation for his side and using it to his advantage. So, you know, he took this moment when he returned to Russia, even though he knew he would probably be arrested for violating his probation and and spoke at the airport, took the moment when everybody was paying attention to his return to Russia, despite the the great risk of arrest, and shared this video about the corruption inside Russia that we'll talk about in just a minute. And he definitely used his moment in the courtroom to speak to what was going on. So first he goes after Vladimir Putin. He says he's never participated in any debates or campaigned in an election. Murder is the only way he knows how to fight. He'll go down in his history as nothing but a poisoner. We all remember Alexander the Liberator and Yaroslav the Wise. Well, now we have Vladimir the Underpants Poisoner. And he called him the Underpants Poisoner because it's believed that the nerve agent that they used to poison him was put on the, the waistband of his underwear. He went on to speak about the economic situation in Russia, and he says, we've got 20 million people living below the poverty line. We have tens of millions of people living without the slightest prospect for the future. Life is bearable in Moscow, but travel 100 kilometers in any direction and everything's a mess. Our whole country is living in this mess without the slightest prospects, earning 20,000 rubles a month, and they're all silent. They try to shut people up with these show trials, lock up this one to scare millions more. One person takes to the streets and they lock up another five to scare 15 million more. I hope very much that people won't look at this trial as a signal that they should be more afraid. This isn't a demonstration of strength. It's a show of weakness. You can't lock up millions and hundreds of thousands of people. I hope very much that people will realize this and they will because you can't lock up the whole country. Upon his return to Russia, there were protests that he called for across the country. I mean, usually these protests were so long because they were called for on the internet and the internet access was focused on Moscow and the big cities. We're also focused on Moscow and the big cities, but as the internet has expanded, so has Navalny's reached. And you saw protests across the country. You know, there's lots of coverage of in cities where it was like 40 below, little towns and rural areas where it's like 40 below zero, people are out protesting. And there were also an enormous amount of arrests. Police detained more than detained more than 5,750 people nationwide, which was the biggest one-day total in Russia since Soviet times. And many of the re- protesters reported that they were attacked, intimidated by police custody, you know, and they did a lot of other intimidation as the protests went on once Navalny was sentenced. So, I mean, in Russia, I think you Putin has finally found an opposition leader who understands both the Russian people and the culture and the media there and how to use the Internet. So as I said, when he everyone was focused on his return to Russia, they released a two hour YouTube video about this Black Sea Palace that Putin had built. And it's been viewed over 100 million times. I watched it. Have you watched any of it, Beth? 
No, it's been in my browser tabs forever, though. I can't wait to get into it. It's fascinating. It's so highly produced. I mean, like, Rachel Maddow and her, like, linking people together has got nothing on Navalny. Let me tell you, like, he just, he's very, very systematic about linking people together. They, like, put together 3D graphics, like, showing you what the palace will look like based on photos they have from workers and receipts they have from the, like, super fancy Italian furniture makers. And, it, I mean, it's ridiculous. The, the palace is ridiculous. It's definitely over the top. And it's really interesting because when Putin came out and, like, resp- finally responded to the video, it was it wasn't like... No, it's not true. He said neither he nor his relatives own any of the properties. Well, that's not what he was accused of doing. Navalny's very clear of like he doesn't own it, but here's the shells like here's all the people covering from him. Now they're trying to say it's like still being built and it's a and it's an apartment hotel. And, you know, they're kind of batting it around. And I think, you know, I listened to a reporter for Medusa, an independent Russian newspaper on Pod Save the World. And he was just saying like. Navalny is much like Putin and like and honestly, like even sort of you you hear this undercurrent in a lot of like Russian culture and a lot of Russian political reporting. And like it's all about showing strength. Right. It's all about you can see why Donald Trump was so drawn to Putin in the way that he like behaves and he believes that any any response is seen as weakness. So any sort of giving in to protesters is not acceptable because that's saying like we're actually on any sort of equal footing and we're we're taking concessions from you. And so like that's impossible. I mean, they used to issue permits for these protests for a long time. And they would say, see, like, see, we let you we let you protest. We let you say what you want to say. But now, you know, Navalny's gone from being just an enemy to being really seen by the government as a traitor. And so now they don't issue permits for any of the protests. They'll just grab people off the street and arrest them. And so, you know, it's it is an enormous risk that Navalny operates. But I think that he in in a lot of ways understands Putin. And and every time Putin gives him this platform upon which to either be persecuted openly within these courts or refuses to respond to the the levels, you know, the accusations of corruption, which is how Navalny started. He started as like a an activist stockholder. He would he would buy stock in these companies and then expose the corruption. And like, I mean, I think it's also important to remember that like Navalny is not some liberal hero, right? Like he's very nationalistic. He has said Islamophobic things in the past and some really awful things about certain populations within Russia. Like, but you know, he's kind of become a politician over time and has focused on the things that really unite Russians against Putin, which was hard to do for a long time because, you know, when Russia annexed Crimea, that was enormously popular in Russia. And I think that's something else to to remember, right, is that Russia is not this populist, hungry for Western democracy that Putin is just putting down at every, like, harshly oppressing, that he, that he was enormously popular in the country after the annexation of Crimea, that was like seen as this like bringing countries that had been pushed out of the Russian Empire back into the fold. And it was very patriotic. And despite the fact that it was like enormously and continues to be enormously alarming for the, you know, Western Europe, the idea that Russia will come and take back some of these areas or countries like it was popular inside Russia. But you know, as Navalny kind of references this in his speech, is that over time this has become very different. Like the financial stagnation in Russia is real. Like people's wages aren't rising. 
you know, the government was forced to raise the retirement age on some of the government pension funds, which was enormously unpopular. They're suffering under some of the sanctions that they've been under due to their meddling in the 2016 election and the obviously the sanctions from the annexation of Crimea. And so their wages are declining. Their population is declining. They have a little bit of a brain drain. And so people are miserable and they know that the government will go out of their way to intimidate them and arrest them and, you know, maybe even attack them while under arrest. But I was reading an article and they said there's a common Russia Russian saying, which is what's better, a horrible end or horror without end. And the guy was arguing, well, the former's preferable. You know, like you might be taken out by the police, but it's, you know, there's not a lot of prospects inside the economy in Russia right now. And that's what people are really facing. The photograph that was circulating of Navalny as he was being taken into detention, where he's making a heart with his hands as they're separating him from his wife, Mm -hmm. illustrated to me a lot of what you were just saying about how shrewd he is. Because while I think he is brave, obviously, in standing up and, and relentless in his opposition to Putin, I think he also has studied other opposition leaders and understands what a signal it is to the public when you are visibly choosing the political fight Mm -hmm. over your family and seeing the personal cost of all of this. That is comparable to something we're going to talk about in Myanmar in just a second. A lot of what you're saying about Navalny reminds me of Aung San Suu Kyi that we're going to talk about in Myanmar. But I'm interested, Sarah, since you've spent so much time thinking about Russia in what you see as the reality of Russia that American citizens need to really comprehend and appreciate. Well, I mean, I think it's just hard. Why do we talk about Russia so much, right? It doesn't have like this huge population like China. It doesn't have a huge economy. I think Italy's GDP is bigger than Russia. But here's what it does have. A lot of nuclear weapons. 90% of nuclear weapons belong to the United States or Russia. And so arms treaties and arms control is something that we have to talk about and we have to think about, particularly in relationship to Russia. But we have good news. The U.S. and Russia have formally extended the New START nuclear arms treaty through 2026. That just happened. That's really good. That limits the number of nuclear warheads each country can deploy. And calls for, like, on-site inspections to verify compliance. I mean, we have to stay in relationship with Russia as the United States because who else is going to inspect? Who else is going to make sure that this country who has the ability to really obliterate, I don't know, all of us, (laughs) stays in compliant and, like, we keep an eye on them? Like, I mean, for better or for worse, the Cold War with regards to nuclear weapons sort of, you know, married us together. We're in this together now. And so I think that that's one reason why, as Americans, you know, Russia will and should always be on our radar. You know, they're a military superpower. They have they spend an enormous amount on their military. They exercise a lot of military power, you know, because of the USSR. They inherited a spot on the United Nations Security Council, which means they can veto a lot of stuff, right? Like they can veto a lot of stuff that's important to us. So they have that because of their military power and the nuclear power they have power on the international stage. And they exercise that military superpower through arms sales and, you know, just assistance. Um, You saw it in Belarus, right? Belarus is a part of that fallen empire. It's another country that it's not like Crimea. There's a lot of people in Crimea who want to be back with Russia. That's not necessarily true in Belarus. And so you saw that popular uprising around the presidential election. Well, the president was able to call in help from Putin and from the Russian military. And those protests haven't really quite gone anywhere. And I think that that's 
you know, their ability to step into places like Syria, to step into North Korea and exercise that influence through their military might is something we can't ignore either. They're also an energy superpower. They have enormous oil and gas reserves that are used by the Chinese and other areas in the world. Now, I was just reading a really interesting article in the Financial Times about how renewable energies are going to shift the global power around dramatically, that that renewable energies have really taken off. And so for, you know, decades, the ways in which superpowers have been created around fossil fuels is going to change. That's already changing. It will continue to change. And so that might change for Russia. But as of now, there are enormous energy and gas reserves give them power on the international stage. And that when I say Russia, I mean Putin. I mean, he can be there through 2036. He's already been there 20 years. He'll, he will have been in power in Russia longer than Stalin. And so, you know, it's hard to talk about any of this. And why do we spend so much time thinking about Vladimir Putin? Well, because for all intents and purposes, Putin is Russia. And I think paying attention to what motivates him, particularly his desire for influence on the global stage, and I think the sense that Russia should be a superpower, should have enormous influence, should be an empire again. I think that that's why that the annexation of Crimea was both an insight into why they are so dangerous and an insight to why he's popular in Russia sometimes at certain points in, in his reign, whatever you want to call it. And so I think for, you know, for all those reasons, we can't ever really just turn our backs and ignore Russia. The readout of Biden's call with Putin indicated that it was a pretty tough conversation and that Biden is confronting Putin more over things like the solar winds um, hacking, the reporting that the Russian military uh, paid for bounties on Americans in Afghanistan. I'm wondering what you see in Biden and Blinken's approaches here that you think will be materially different other than that public confrontation aspect from where the Trump administration's been on Russia? Well, I mean, I think part of the, you know, those calls are interesting, but, you know, he just lies. <laughs> you know, he's just going to say that wasn't us. We didn't do it. So it's more about just registering your displeasure than it is actually thinking you're going to have any influence on Putin himself because he's just going to stone cold say, well, it wasn't us. We weren't doing any bounties on Americans' heads. We weren't a part of the solar winds. That wasn't us. But I was listening to someone talk about how long he's been there, um, not only in Russia, but on the global stage, and that he's seen people come and go. And I thought, well, that's interesting because that's also the position Joe Biden is in, right? Mm -hmm. um, that is a fundamental strength he has as well, that he's been here this whole time. He's been thinking and watching Putin this entire time. And I think it will be interesting to see how that plays out if some, when he's finally met with someone. And I think that that was his fear of Hillary Clinton, too. Right. Like he felt like this. This was somebody who knew his tricks, who knew how he manipulated things, who understood the centers of out of which he operates um, and could respond more effectively. And I think that's true of Joe Biden, too. Um, and I think that we'll see that hopefully play out. Well, we're going to go to China next, and I'm really interested to see if you hear all of the connections that I think I'm hearing between what you've been learning about Russia and what I've been learning about Myanmar and the situation in Taiwan, which both impact China. But before we do, we always like to have a little moment of hope. And Particularly of importance when you're talking about Vladimir Putin. Yes. <laughs> and I was really excited. I'm going to dive into the power sharing agreement in the Senate next week on the Nightly Nuance. But a piece of it is that we are about to have our first Black woman serving as the Senate's secretary. 
And secretary of the Senate is a really important role. It's someone who is ensuring that Senate records are maintained, that all operations are running smoothly. This is the person who oversees the PAGE program. And uh, Chuck Schumer has announced that Sinceria Ann Barry is going to take that role beginning March 1st. She is from Alabama. She set up Doug Jones's office after his special election victory. She's worked in the Senate for more than 40 years, most recently as Deputy Chief of Staff to Patrick Leahy. Everything I read about her this morning has been so complimentary. It seems like people are really excited. She's only the eighth woman to serve in this role and the first black woman. And I just think it's uplifting and exciting to see things moving in this direction. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. You know how you learn to really appreciate how good your products are? Leave town and get stuck with whatever shampoo is in the hotel. I take Pros and their custom hair products for granted, y'all. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. From millions of possible formulas, only one is uniquely yours or mine. I never found beauty products that really understood my needs, but ever since I switched to custom hair and skin routine with Pros, I've noticed so many benefits. My thin hair is moisturized but not weighed down, and my waves have never looked better. And Pros isn't just better for you, it's better for the planet. They're a certified B Corps, cruelty-free, and the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash pantsuit. So you get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash pantsuit. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash pantsuit. In previous episodes, I have outed myself as a bed-making fanatic. I am very serious about my bed being an oasis, a gift to Chad and me as we crawl into it at the end of a long day. So I want to return to how much I love my bowl and branch sheets. With bowl and branch sheets, you can discover a new level of softness. The sheets are made from 100% organic cotton in a buttery, breathable weave that truly gets softer every time you wash them. And you know that I like to do that once a week. So my bowl and branch are rapidly aging like a fine wine. The sheets look great. I have them in a beautiful slate color. They stay put, so making my bed is quick and easy. They are a bestseller for a reason. The signature sheets feel incredible on night one. 
They are loved by millions of sleepers and they come with a 30-night worry-free guarantee. Sleep better at night with the softest sheets from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your first order when you use promo code pantsuit at bowlandbranch.com. That's Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code pantsuit. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So, Beth, while I was focusing on the importance of Russia on the global stage, you were focusing on China. Tell us what you learned. Well, China, of course, is an entirely different ballgame. As you mentioned, China is, you know, a lot more people than Russia. We have 1.4 billion people in China in an area of land that is almost as big as the United States. It's the second largest economy in the world right behind the United States. It also has nuclear capabilities. And the headline for me about China is that it's growing faster than any other developed economy in the world. And that is a marked difference from Russia, which we just heard a new Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin say is a country in decline. So we have mm-hmm. to think about Russia a little bit differently than China. That is certainly not the case. And the strategy in the Chinese Communist Party is to increase China's influence in the world to be seen as this like benign international cooperative partner and to subtly and gradually shift the world's view in seeing China's form of leadership as superior to liberal democracy. So let's talk about what that means in Myanmar, which you've probably heard a lot about in the news. And I want to do a little geography, both because I'm a geography nerd and I love it, and because I think probably most of us could not find Myanmar on a map. And so let's talk about where it is. It is a little smaller than Texas in terms of land size. It is bordered by Bangladesh, India, China, Laos, and Thailand. About 54 million people live in Myanmar. There are about 29 million people in Texas, so very densely populated. The British East India Company seized control of Myanmar in the 19th century. It was then briefly occupied by Japan and reconquered by allies after World War II. And then it became independent in 1948. And really since 1948, there has been some form of civil war in Myanmar among ethnic groups. The majority of ethnic Burmese people, Myanmar is also known as Burma, are overwhelmingly Buddhist. That's about 70% of the population. But there are dozens of other ethnicities and religious practices, and so you have real ethno-sectarian violence happening there. In 2011, the military government that was in power was dissolved following the first general election in 20 years, and a civilian government was installed. But as part of that process, the military like wrote a constitution that gave it enormous power, even as you were having a democratically elected government coming into power. And that government hit the gas and started running, and Myanmar's economy starts growing, and uh, society starts opening up in some ways, and people are really excited. In 2015, people thought, like, we're going to we're going to take it to the next level because Aung San Suu Kyi, who we're going to talk more about, won a majority with her party, the National League for Democracy, in both houses of Myanmar's government. And she had really become this symbol of the movement for democracy and and was talked about as like a a spiritual inheritor of the nonviolent movement because she spent 15 years under house arrest. And she was a Nobel Peace Prize laureate. She survived an assassination attempt. And so people were really excited about her leadership. 
So in those 2015 elections, she wins the right to be the president of Myanmar, but her late husband and children are foreign citizens, and the Constitution would not, because of that, allow her to be the president. So she assumed a new role, the state counselor of Myanmar, which is a little bit like a prime minister. However, the military resisted a lot of her reform efforts, and the government leadership she installed, like the bureaucrats that came into power with her, did not have much experience and were really slow to make progress. And so a lot of this momentum starts dropping off and supporters of her and her party get really disillusioned. And things get worse in 2017 when the military starts an ethnic cleansing operation against the Muslim Rohingya minority in a state in western Myanmar. About 100,000 people were put in refugee camps. Lots and lots of Rohingya Muslims fled to Bangladesh. And very confusingly and disappointingly for the international community, Aung San Suu Kyi cooperated with the military and defended this campaign in the International Court of Justice. So some people thought she was being pragmatic and trying to cooperate with the military here to move the country toward democracy, and others saw this as a real betrayal. Myanmar had been growing economically, and most of that investment is now coming from other Asian countries because of the Rohingya Muslim crisis, many Western countries pulled investment and pulled aid. So other Asian countries have just ramped up their investments, and China is one of the main investors in Myanmar. Because of the way the military and the business elite operate there, the economy is growing in a very inequitable way, and there is a lot of smuggling and drug production, and that is the backdrop for the elections that took place in November. So even though we had some disillusionment, the NLD won 83% of the open seats in parliament. This was seen as a referendum on Aung San Suu Kyi, and she passed it. And the military refused to accept the results. So if she was trying to be pragmatic around the ethnic cleansing operation, it did not work. The military started arguing in the country's highest court that the election was fraudulent They surrounded the Houses of Parliament with soldiers, and last Monday, the military detained party leaders, cabinet ministers, opposition politicians, writers, and activists. And they used a military-owned TV station to just announce that they were taking over. They just announced the coup. They said, we're declaring a state of emergency, as we're entitled to do under the Constitution. It's going to last one year. And they suspended most television broadcasts and canceled all domestic and international flights. They suspended telephone and internet access in major cities. The stock market closed. The banks closed. People ran out to try to get cash and to stock up on food and supplies. So now Aung San Suu Kyi is being held by the military. And she has been charged. So Sarah was talking about Navalny and these trumped-up charges. She is being charged with illegally importing at least 10 walkie-talkies. And that is punishable by up to three years in prison. Myanmar's president has been charged with violations of coronavirus restrictions, also punishable by incarceration. This is the military's MO. They often use arcane offenses to try to sideline leaders that they think of as threats. So you have protesters supporting her. There is a lot of coverage in the West on the way these protesters are using the Hunger Games salute, which has become a symbol for pro-democracy movements in Southeast Asia. The protests are very serious. You have things happening like healthcare workers going on strike from their jobs and going to work in charity healthcare clinics so that people can still get care. 
Okay, so I talked about this under the heading of China. Because China is such a major investor in Myanmar, because China shares a 1,300-mile border with Myanmar, China developed a working relationship with Aung San Suu Kyi, and they also have a working relationship with the military. The UN Security Council is discussing condemnation for the coup and advocating Aung San Suu Kyi's immediate release. And there is concern that China, which has been fairly quiet about this so far, could veto that resolution. Because overall, if you look at the big picture, this moves Myanmar in a direction that you might assume China is more comfortable with than the pro-democracy direction. And this is a really difficult spot for the Biden administration. Because the United States doesn't have a lot of influence in Myanmar. We don't do a lot of trade there. We don't have a lot of investment there. We don't do a lot of aid. What we did do, we pulled back because of the ethnic cleansing um, that happened to the Rohingya Muslims. And so we could try some sanctions or pull back some aid even more. But we don't have a lot of options. We don't want to pull out altogether in a way that causes Myanmar to draw even closer to China. So this is a really tough position for the United States to be in in terms of formulating a response. You see, I think, so many similar threads with Russia, which is a big global player for different reasons, is looking to find influence. And so, you know, I think you see this with Russia and Syria. If there is conflict, particularly between an authoritarian government and authoritarian players and, you know, others, rebels, pro-democracy, whatever you, whatever the case may be, those hotspots are their chances to exert influence and to stack the deck so that they can remain in power and they can remain influential. And you see that trend continuing in Taiwan. So just a little bit of history and geography about Taiwan. It is officially called the Republic of China. It's bordered by China, Japan, and the Philippines. It is, of course, an island. It's about the size of Maryland and Delaware combined. About 24 million people live in Taiwan. If you combine Maryland and Delaware, you'd have about 7 million people. So again, very densely populated. It has been through Dutch colonization, Chinese rule, been part of Japan's empire, and then post-World War II has been back under China's control. And this is kind of confusing. When we talk about China, what do we mean? There was a Chinese civil war where mainland China was lost from the Republic of China to the Chinese Communist Party. That is the view of it from Taiwan. And the Republic of China in Taiwan claims to be the legitimate representative of China to the world. But its jurisdiction has effectively been limited to Taiwan and other small Pacific islands. And during the Carter administration, the United States went from recognizing the Republic of China in Taiwan as the representative to the world to recognizing the People's Republic of China, which is controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. So mainland China claims that it controls Taiwan and it refuses to have diplomatic relations with countries that recognize Taiwan as the Republic of China. And there's a tension in Taiwan because you have a multi-party democratic system and you have people who favor unification with mainland China and you have people who favor independence and embracing a Taiwanese identity. The United States has a policy of deliberate ambiguity regarding Taiwan. So we have relationships with the people of Taiwan and their government, but we have like a pseudo embassy. It's not an official embassy. We have not gone so far in our relationships with Taiwan that we have provoked China. 
We do have fairly bipartisan consensus and have for a long time that we stand with Taiwan against military aggression from the People's Republic of China. Okay, so the first weekend of the Biden administration is a little welcome gift. The People's Republic of China dispatches two large formations of warplanes close to Taiwan. 15 warplanes, including eight that are capable of carrying nuclear weapons. And they send them in an air defense identification area that they had stayed out of for a very long time. So Taiwan scrambles fighter jets in a war scenario simulation to monitor these Chinese flights. And China's Ministry of Defense then issues a statement saying, We warn those Taiwan independence elements, those who play with fire will burn themselves. And Taiwan independence means war. Subtle. Okay. Mm. In response, on Thursday, the Navy sent a guided missile destroyer through the Taiwan Strait. That ship is the USS John S. McCain. And sending ships, and specifically this ship, through the Taiwan Strait is not new. It's something that we tend to do when things get hot between China and Taiwan. Just to remind everybody that America cares about this. And so this is a continuation of foreign policy. We did this during the Obama years. We did it during the Trump years. We're doing it in the Biden years now. This is the first time in the Biden administration. The Trump administration took things a little farther. They sold military hardware to Taiwan. They sent some high-level officials to Taiwan. And it is expected that the Biden administration will be even bolder in recognizing Taiwan and uplifting the cause of Taiwanese independence. We have a lot more on the line here than in Myanmar because Taiwan is our ninth largest trading partner. It is doing very well economically. It's been remarkable in its handling of COVID-19, which has increased its standing in the world. Of course, it has a woman president. That's just a theme in countries that have done remarkably well uh, with COVID-19. This is a very delicate situation for everybody, and strategic ambiguity has been good for everyone. It's also really fragile. You know, Taiwan doesn't want to be a pawn in some kind of conflict between the United States and China. Taiwanese citizens are not united about their desires for the country. And we also understand that probably our best move toward China, as outlined in this really fascinating paper called The Longer Telegram that we'll link in the show notes, is to exploit division within the Chinese Communist Party. Because people think that Xi Jinping uh, is really ambitious and really aggressive and has amassed an awful lot of wealth for himself and demands an awful lot of loyalty. And so I'm just wondering as we watch this if Xi Jinping will overplay his hand here because we've got a pretty aggressive Biden administration and a world that is not a big fan of China because of everything related to COVID-19. And... Taiwanese citizens are seeing how aggressive China is being in Hong Kong. And so if you were ever thinking, maybe we would like to be part of one united China, you might see Hong Kong and think, no, perhaps not. And so this situation feels potentially explosive to me. It's like one of those things where a really small misstep on any party's part could escalate the conflict very rapidly. You know, we talked about China's strengths, and they are many. But it does not only operate out of a position of strength. You know, it has an aging population, which is deeply problematic for any country. It has not been able to continue its influence and solve these ambiguous 
situations like Taiwan and Hong Kong and has overplayed their hand dramatically. Uh, We also have not talked about the Uyghurs, you know, as more and more people escape the systematic oppression and genocide of the Uyghur people by the Chinese government, the international community continues to pay more and more attention. You know, The Guardian had a recent profile on this that is just heartbreaking. And there was another one on the BBC that was outlining systematic rape of the Uyghur women that are in these detention camps. The, just the psychological and physical trauma that's going on under the Chinese government in this part of the world. And, I, you know, I think that with any sort of ambitious position, which I also believe the Chinese Communist Party is in, and, and she in particular, like, they overplay. Like, I think that they go too far. And I think, you know, it, part of this fault lies with the international community for believing that, and particularly, like, at the end of of the colonization and of Hong Kong and Taiwan, that these like ambiguous situations were just going to drift out in the ether forever. You know, I think some of that responsibility lies farther than China. But the idea that, you know, we were just going to open up the markets to China and they were going to play by the rules and never become ambitious or aggressive or oppressive was foolish. And I, you know, I think we we see that now. And I think you're right. I think like it's going to most likely get worse before it gets better, because I don't think that even in the face of their covering up of the situation with COVID-19 in the beginning of January 2020 and the sort of fallout around the world, they also have, you know, it's not that it's not just a weakness. That's also like a position of, well, look, see, we contained it and and, and they're buying vaccines to pass out to developing countries. So like they're they're never going to stop playing for that position of strength and influence. And, you know, it's going to be constantly shifting ground upon which both the United States and the international community has to decide where they stand. Well, and I think that is what's most interesting about both conversations. I loved it when you were talking about how our fortunes in many ways are tied up with Russia. And that's true about China, too. It's true about every country in the globe. We cannot have pure allies and pure enemies anymore. One of the things that I loved in this piece, The Longer Telegram, which is an anonymous paper published by a senior government official through the Atlantic Council. And it really dissects what we know about our relationship with China and what our strategic objectives ought to be. And it talked about how there are areas where we very much need to view China as a partner. Climate change is one of them. Nuclear proliferation is one of them. We can't just say, like, we're writing off China. And I think the difficulty in Myanmar that we have shows what happens when you don't bring people into trade relationships. Then you don't have many tools at your disposal, right? The only tools you start to have are military. And I think that is why it's been almost impossible to articulate like a coherent explanation of U.S. foreign policy for such a long time, because segregating out those buckets where we really need to work with other countries versus the things that are red lines that we cannot allow other countries to cross and that we should be held to as well versus things that are priorities versus places where we're competitors. It's really difficult and confusing. And I'm interested to see not only how the Biden administration meets each of these fires that come up on the foreign policy front, but how they help the American public kind of come along in an understanding of what our relationships with other countries should be. 
Well, and I think what it hopefully shows that America First is it's not just that we have a philosophical difference with that approach. It's that it's delusional. You know, the idea that we can seclude ourselves and not have influence in the world or that we can influence through seclusion is just ridiculous. The world continues to turn. Players in the international stage like China and Russia continue to have influence, continue to try to expand their power, both just through influence and through actual physical territory, through violence, through acts of aggression. And the idea that we can just protect our interests without ever engaging when big players like Russia and China will absolutely continue to engage no matter what populist strand of isolationism is popular in the United States right now, is what we all need to realize. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't discuss in this conversation how many Americans were advocating for the military to take control of our government Mm -hmm. following the 2020 election. And if you want to know what that looks like, here are our examples. People being detained on charges that are false, internet blackouts, television blackouts, phone blackouts, runs on banks, stocking up on supplies. I think that we got such a mild version of that sort of panic buying during COVID, but cannot imagine what it would look like if we actually had the military seize control in the United States. And so this kind of casual flirtation with authoritarianism that is discussed online and is making its way offline needs a big foreign policy lesson, in my opinion, to to do a reality Mm -hmm. check. This is what we're actually talking about. We're finally at my favorite time of year. Spring is here. Summer is just around the corner. We're getting our summer essentials ready, our sunscreen, our emotional support water bottles, our steamy beach reeds. But maybe you would prefer your steamy earbuds. This year, there is a new kind of essential right at your fingertips. Enemies to love, chance encounters, a slow burn, friends that become more. Whatever your favorite romantic trope, Dipsy has a spicy audio story just for you. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short and spicy audio stories that bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. You can discover stories about second chance romances and adventurous vacation flings. That's my favorite. Hot and heavy hookups. It can be as heavy or as light as you want it to be. This is what I love about Dipsy. It is a modern approach to romance through high quality, captivating audio fiction that you can listen to in the privacy of your own headphones. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. That's dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they made solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. 
Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a AA cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. What's on your mind outside of politics, Sarah? <sighs> okay. I have this hip that's been bothering me. The strong me. start. <laughs> yeah. I have this hip that's been bothering me for a long time. You know, I fell when I was like a cabillion months pregnant with Felix. Sometimes I wonder if like that's how it started. I remember picking up Felix long past when I probably should have been picking up Felix and hear, feeling like a subtle pop. I wonder if that's where it started. I don't know, but it's it's kind of consistently sore. And I've done a million things like I go to the chiropractor, I get dry needling, I do yoga, but it really, you know, I, I've changed the way I sleep at night. And I went to the chiropractor recently and he was like, I walked in in Uggs. <laughs> he was like, uh, you know, those shoes are the worst, right? And I'm like, no, I know. Like, he's like, there's no, there's no support to them. He's like, you know, if this consistently bothers you and you're like walking around and she's with no support, that's definitely part of it. Like, and he told me this the first time I came, like, you really need to wear tennis shoes. And I, you know, I'm such, I'm so good at like not getting caught up in the appearance of things. Like, I think people who whine about minivans, making them feel like old and a mom and uncool are the lamest. No offense if you're one of those people. Or, like, even, like, certain beauty standards, like, I will happily discard. I, I don't spend a lot of time, like, worried about the, the like, the look of things. But something about wearing supportive shoes makes me feel so old and so deeply uncool. And really, and I hope this doesn't hurt my mom's feelings, like my mom. My mom has always had feet problems, like, her whole life. She's the worst feet. And I'm like... But I know I know I need to. I've d- been wearing tennis shoes with insoles because I'm the oldest for like the past couple of days. And I think I can already feel a difference. You know me like tell the people how like I treat every tiny physical malady as a problem to be solved. And I'm like hardcore investigator, researcher, problem solver until I fix it. Is that not usually my M.O.? Oh, that's 100 percent your M.O. Like, thank you. If we're traveling and... Sarah has a, a discomfort. Dis- minor, minor discomfort. I promise you that like, what's a fair percentage you think, Sarah? Like 30 to 40 percent of your mental energy is there until you've discovered yeah, the genesis of yes. the of the issue and what the solution is going to be. Yeah, for sure. At least 30 percent. Yeah, because I just it, there's just this part of my brain that's like problem must be solved. There must be something like with my diet or 
how I'm sleeping or how I'm holding my body or the exercise I'm doing or not doing or my stress level. Like I even did it with my stress level, right? Like I just threw everything at it. Like I'm meditating. I'm doing the new calm naps. Like I'm doing all the things until I get at the problem. And this hip, even though I think if I'd been honest with myself from the beginning, of course the shoes I'm wearing around my house are, and I could feel it like when I would wear really heavy boots in particular, like it really, really makes it worse. And it's like just something about that, though, like I could not accept. I hate the idea of like being the person, even though I've like thrown out heels. Literally, when I have one pair of like the super fancy supportive heels and I literally have to dust them when I wear them because they're black patent leather and I have to dust them off because I wear them so rarely they're covered in an inch of dust so like I was happy to throw out the heels and was like very like wearing heels is dumb you know I worry about Nancy Pelosi clomping around those marble hallways at 80 years old in heels so like in some levels like I was so happy to throw it away but there is something about like wearing the tennis shoes (laughs) just around my house that I could not openly face. Clearly, that's that will be part of the solution. You just need to do that. And like feeling like, am I going to have to be wearing lace-up shoes for the rest of my life? I do not want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to do it. Well, so many things here. First of all, this is a societal problem because we all need to be wearing more supportive shoes. We just do. We that's should true. just build the shoes in a more supportive yes. way because we know this. This is not new information now. Here in the year of our Lord, 2021, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, manufacturers, mm -hmm. we need more supportive shoes. We need them to be Mm -hmm. cute. And some people are doing that. I do think there are some good options for you. I've spent a lot of time trying to help my mom find good shoes. And I think there are some really good options out there. I think one of the biggest blessings of the last year has been that I've worn tennis shoes every day. And I can tell a huge difference. Like, I feel better walking around my house in tennis shoes than when I was wearing not tennis shoes every day. Mm-hmm. And even slippers. Like, I love to wear slippers. I don't feel good the days that I wear slippers all day. It's the tennis shoes that do it for me. I think what feels old about this, this is what I experience anyway. When I reach a level of difficulty physically that I recognize is not going away, that it cannot be fixed, it can only be mitigated. But, like, I have these pains in my thumbs right now. It's just clearly arthritis. And I know, like, I can try to keep this from getting worse and I can do some things to help. But it's just going to be here. That's just Mm -hmm. where I am. And that is what makes you kind of confront the stage of life that you're in, right? Because it's not an injury. It is a wear and tear on your body. Yeah. And, I mean, the thing is, like, I don't – I'm not afraid of getting old. Listen – I've had far too many friends pass away tragically. Every day is a gift. I feel that in my cells, in my bones, in my sore hip. (laughs) Like, it's not, it's just, there's something about the, just the, the sense of like, I don't know, at a certain age of life, you kind of, even if you know what's good for you, you always feel like a choice. It felt like a choice. It felt like. I know this is good for me and I'm happy to do it. I'm not giving up anything except for other people's, you know, crap about it. And even though I'm like, I'm not a big shoe person, it just feels like I'm giving something up and I don't really have a choice about it. Honestly, I really think it's because I feel like I'm becoming my mom who always like 
and continues to like struggle with shoes. Usually I benefit. Right now the tennis shoes I'm wearing are super cute Allbirds that she couldn't wear and gave me because they hurt her feet. So like, oh man, I just think there's there's an issue of like becoming your parents too that's like not even about getting old. It's about, I don't know, like identity and like rebellion. I don't, I don't know. No, I clearly I need to talk to my therapist about it. You know, for me, I think it's more like the incongruence between the emotional dimension of getting older and the physical dimension of getting older. Mm-hmm. Because emotionally, I love getting older. Like, yeah. I wouldn't go back for anything. Nothing. Right, right, right. We're turning 40 this year. I'm here for it. I feel mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. in control and more like myself, freer. Like, I am all about aging right now honestly i found a few gray hairs today and i was like looking good you're doing just fine keep at it i'm here for my gray hairs they're coming in in my bangs which i think is gonna look baller so i'd like to keep that going yeah i feel really really good about aging in every way except physically and like you said it's not aesthetic it's just the feeling it's just like those places where i realize like oh that is not going to feel better (laughs) that is just how we're gonna be rolling now (laughs) When I was younger, I thought, like, you got older and you, like, got tougher. Like, things affected you less. And it is the opposite. I thought you would get older and you'd be like, well, I'm going to eat whatever donuts I want. Who cares? But no, the donuts make you feel 10 times worse. Oh, yeah. Terrible. Then they made you feel when you were 20. That sucks. Nobody warned me about that. I don't like that at all. Ellen today was like, Mom, do you like strawberry milk or chocolate milk better? I was like, I can't look at either. <laughs> it <feels> so bad. <laughs> Strawberry milk is an abomination. I don't know why they make it. Um, Let me just get that off my chest. Or serve it to children in school. Yeah, I just, I think that's the part, too. It's like, it just feels like you've earned some sort of calluses, and you should be able to, like, enjoy this stuff and it not affect. It's the same way, you know, you and I have had this conversation about alcohol. Like, oh, my gosh, any alcohol sends me in, like, the worst sort of, like, crummy mood spiral. Now I do it's weird. I feel like liquor doesn't do it as much as wine, but it just makes me feel so terrible, so so terrible. Yeah, a thousand percent not worth it ever. No. Not worth no. it. Mm-mm. Well, someone once told me, I think as a compliment that she liked how uncool we are, and I feel like we've really leaned into that here. <laughs> I resent that. See, I don't want to No, I hate that so much. Oh, oh we're no. very real. Listen, I just watched Fake Famous, and I need you to watch it so that we can talk about it fully. But as I was watching it, I thought, no, I'm really pleased with being uncool because (laughs) we are very, very real, right? I'm not striving in any way to, like, present a view of life where I've – I just have to tell you this one part because it was – I will never get over it. (laughs) And these people are buying toilet seats, like the, the thing that you put on your toilet to sit on. And holding it up to make it look like they're staring out of an airplane window. Oh, my God. I will never get over it. I will never, this, ever get is, over it. What is this show? Is it? Is it's it a, a documentary about Instagram okay. influencers. And the documentary team takes three people and tries to make them fake famous. So they buy oh. a bunch of bots to follow them. And they stage all these photo shoots. And it is something else. I cannot wait for you to watch it. But oh my it, it made me feel real good about sitting on my podcast talking about our sore hips because <laughs> I would much rather be doing that than pretending to be on an airplane. Truly, truly. Any day of the week, especially with you, my dear. Likewise, my friend. Let us grow old together. <laughs> <laughs> 
And of course, with all of you, thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsu Politics. We hope you have the best weekend available to you. Pantsu Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, David McWilliams, Allie Edwards, Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited, Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph, Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia, Lori Ladau, Emily Neasley, Allison Luzader, Tracy Putoff, Danny Osmond, Molly Kors, Julie Haller, Jared Minson, Marnie Johansson, The Creeps, Tawny Peterson, Sherry Blem, Tiffany Hasler, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Linda Daniel, Joshua Allen, and Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.